You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even the women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things that are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth, against those who practice such things? And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring for yourselves up wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the, of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek." But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there's no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law, 
will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and being between, uh, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And so, Lord, as we just pull apart the first half of chapter 2, Lord, not one of us in this room will find themselves innocent before you. And Lord, as we examine just the the extent of your righteous judgment upon all men, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, it doesn't matter, God, one day we'll stand before you. Lord, I pray that you would strike within us just a holy fear, a holy reverence of you, Lord. And a love for you as well as we see that the very righteousness and the very standard that you expected and demanded from us and we weren't able to give, Lord, you provided it for us through your son, Jesus. Make that abundantly clear today by the power of your spirit. And we pray that today, truly, your goodness would lead us to repentance for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, some of you may remember the 70s ultimate self-help book, I'm Okay, You're Okay. Of course, people are being slaughtered in other countries and starving to death, but it's all good. I'm okay, and you're okay. Not long after, the scathing rebuke of this self-help business came out with a book. The author, Wendy Kamenier, wrote the book, I'm Dysfunctional, You're Dysfunctional. Another parody of the book has the title, I'm Okay, You're Not So Hot. When Jerry Seinfeld opened his apartment door to find his helpless friend George Costanza reading this self-help book, I'm Okay, You're Okay, it confirmed Jerry's opinion that his friend was a loser. And as we dive into chapter two, we see that the Romans two guy would say, I'm okay, you're not okay. But for the Bible-believing Christian who reads the rest of the book of Romans, the real counter to it all is, I'm not okay, you're not okay. Already, two themes have been presented to the church in Rome. That God is righteous, he is right, and he gives his righteousness to those that are undeserving. Jesus died as our substitute on the cross to pay the penalty that we should have paid. Not only is God's righteousness shown very clearly, but God's wrath is shown. We've seen this in chapter one so far that he gives people over to do what they want to do. It's been called God's passive wrath and that the real judgment upon men is that he gave them over to uncleanness, to the lusts of their heart and to a debased mind. But that gospel is there that he gave the righteousness to us who are undeserving. As 
Tim Keller shares the gospel, he says, you are more wicked than you can possibly imagine. And you are more loved than you dare to dream. We spent quite a bit of time in Romans chapter 1, a couple weeks in this list of sins, this list of 23 sins showing that man is depraved, man has fallen short of God's glory. These sins that consist of sexual sins and obvious and gross sins, murder and maliciousness, backstabbing, gossip, wickedness, inventing evil things. And as we read that list, perhaps some of you in this room and myself, I've been there, have been the person that would stand up as the list is read and would say, amen. These people will be judged. These people will go to hell. These sins are disgusting. And those that that practice them should be punished. They're disgusting, they're sinful, they're nasty, and they should be judged. And there's almost an applaud as we read, yes, sinners will be judged. But then Paul gives us chapter two, and he says, hold on there, you self-righteous. You want a piece of this? You too are sinful. You're just as sinful. So don't fall into judgment on these individuals, into condemning them into putting the individual down, into damning them, because you yourselves are just as guilty. In chapter two, Paul is gonna deal primarily with the self-righteous religious Jew, but for those of us in 2011 Prineville who don't really fall into that category, incidentally, the Gentile self-righteous is dealt with as well. Now, there's two objections in the Jewish mind as they read chapter one. Two objections concerning that they need the gospel and are under just as much wrath as the Gentiles. First of all, to the Jew, it would seem impossible that a Gentile could be saved. But secondly, the Jew thought that they were exempt from judgment just because they were a Jew, just because they were special chosen People. And while it's true that Israel is a chosen people set apart by God, uh, as, as the Lord told Abraham, him and his seed were to be a vehicle by whom Jesus would bring salvation. And Romans 9 through 11 make the case that God is not done with Israel, nor has he replaced Israel with the church. And so Paul doesn't deny that, yes, the Jews have this privilege, but... The privilege of being a Jew doesn't make them exempt from the judgment of God or their need for righteousness. And from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible teaches that it's through faith in God's gracious provision of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, and nothing and no one else. You know, the Jew or the self-righteous Gentile would say, we don't do these things that the pagan Gentiles do. But Paul would say, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, yes, you do. You know, many 
thought that just because they said they weren't doing such things, they wouldn't be judged. But as we see a few times in this chapter, God judges the secret things because he knows what's happening in secret. Any religious, self-righteous, moralistic person who thinks he knows the secret Uh, that, that God doesn't know this secret and that he's avoiding judgment is condemned just as much as the Romans one blatant, outright, full blown pagan. You see, even the Jew is part of the world turning away from God's general revelation through nature, as we talked about in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, and following verses. God's general revelation through nature and even the conscience. Even the Jew turned away from God's revelation. And the Jew even turned away from God's specific revelation in the law, where it was just clearly laid out, thou shalt not. The Jew turned away from that. And the Jew is going to find out that God is totally fair, totally just, and totally right in the way he deals with sin. Whether you're a Greek or an Egyptian or a South African or a Peruvian or a Bosnian or a Prinevalonian, God is just and right and fair in how he deals with sin. Chapter one shows us just the all out blatancy of sin. And we all kind of cheer like, yeah, they're sick and wrong. But chapter two tells us there's a subtlety of sin. Sin creeps in is just about a poison when it creeps in as self-righteousness within the moralist or within the religious person. We see already in verse one that sin distorts our judgment. You know, chapter one tells us that as we fall into sin, we get this debased mind and it messes with our vision. It messes with our ability to see clearly. Oh, we see sin so clearly in other people, don't we? And yet it's kind of fogged and pushed down and so dim in our lives. Oh, sure, we're all sinners, aren't we? But barely, you know, you can barely see it in my life. <clears throat> Joseph Glanville was a 16th century writer, philosopher, and clergyman. And he said, while all complain of ignorance and error, everyone exempts himself. Man, it's in Rory Rogers, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Man, we see this so clearly in our new social networking tool, don't we? If you keep up with Facebook, man, you see people complaining of ignorance and an error, and yet even within the same post, this person exempts themselves from any ignorance of error and error. And I just look and I say, man, Do you have no gospel vision when you write this post? Do you not realize that you too are in error and you too have sinned? And it's only by the grace of God that you are made to stand, brother. Watch yourself on those Facebook posts. Watch yourself when you are a critic of, you know, music and politicians and films and, you know, just social justice, whatever. Watch yourself. And examine everything that you say through the gospel. Allow the Holy Spirit to remind you to be humble 
Because you too are a sinner, fallen short of the grace of God, of the glory of God. There's a Dutch proverb that says, he who compares himself with another is generally easy on himself. We all remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It says, Jesus spoke this parable concerning, or to some, rather, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. They themselves were righteous and they despise others. And he said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other the tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Kind of the Romans one crowd. Or even, he points the finger, like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But then the tax collector on the other end of the room, standing afar off, could not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. And he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted You know, there are none so blind as those that refuse to see. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, said that prostitutes are in no danger of finding this present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. Lord, don't let us be that proud, that you know, avaricious, that self-righteous, thinking that we don't even need your grace. We're told to take the plank out of our eye before we judge another. You know, our sin looks so much worse when somebody else is doing it. In the uh, story that was given to us, the true account from thousands of years ago, Nathan's story to David of a neighbor who stole a man's lamb. Do you remember it? 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let me just read these seven verses to you. It's a story, so just enjoy. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is after he'd committed adultery with Uriah's wife Bathsheba. And he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished and it grew up together with him and his children it ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom sounds like some of you and your dogs just to be honest it was like a daughter to him and a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who'd come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who'd come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against this rich man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Although the law says that only restoration was to be made, not death. 
And he shall restore fourfold to the land because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. This is your sin. You are the rich one who went and took Uriah's only precious wife. But man, other people's sin look a whole lot worse than our sin, even though it's the exact same thing. Someone may tell us the very thing we're doing, but in a fictional form, and we just don't see it. You know, we look at modern day terms. We've got our economic crisis. Isn't it interesting that it's everybody else's fault, but our own, but my greed, but my wanting what I shouldn't have and what I can't pay for. Oh no, it's the president's fault, or it's these people's fault, or it's everybody else's fault. It's our fault. It's our fault. So sin can produce a bias. We see in verse 1 of chapter 2. It produces a prejudice in our heart. And if you're here today and you haven't yet believed in Jesus for the cleansing of your sins and the renewal of life, to be born again, there's something that's within your heart that's giving you some sort of hall pass and is telling you that you are exempt from the judgment of God and you don't need Jesus. But you're wrong. You're dead wrong. And that voice in your head that's telling you that is demonic. You are a sinner and you are in desperate need of a savior. So in judging others, Verse 1 tells us, we are inexcusable. Whoever we judge, for whenever we judge, we condemn ourselves. For you who judge, practice the same thing. In judging others, we condemn ourselves. The very fact that you are judging another shows that there's a standard, whether it be your own standard or God's standard. You know in your heart there's some kind of standard, and so you judge And because you judge, you are left without excuse. You are not exempt from judgment, Paul says, because you do the same things. You just don't see it. Are we to judge another? I mean, is that what this verse is telling us, that there's to be no judgment passed upon another? Now, Paul isn't condemning judgment here. He's saying, don't judge while you're practicing the same thing. Now, we all know Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. It's everybody's favorite Bible verse, even if they have no history in the church whatsoever. And that is, judge not lest you be judged. Everybody says it. Everybody quotes it. Nobody knows the context of it. But often you hear, hey, all I know is Jesus said, judge not. And specifically, they're saying, hey, all I know, don't judge me. Don't judge me. But Jesus says this, judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that we're to judge one another. And that if there's a sin between a brother, you don't go to the secular court system And let the secular world settle it. You come to the elders. You come to the saints. We're going to judge the angels, 1 Corinthians 6 says. Why shouldn't we judge our own matters within ourselves here? We're to judge. 
You know, the postmodern version of, of Matthew 7 would be, you know what, we should never evaluate any position or view negatively because Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. And yet there's that forgetting that Jesus was always judging, going around and saying this and this and this are wrong or are faulty and woe upon this and that. And so judging is both commanded and condemned within scripture. We are to judge with a righteous judgment in love and in truth. As Jesus said, whatever measure you judge with, that's what you'll be judged with. And so if we are out judging with righteousness and with truth and with love, we can rest assured our judgment will be according to righteousness and according to truth and according to love. Now, people that don't have love when they tell the truth are cold and calloused people. But people who love and don't tell the truth are actually cowards. You know, we say, oh, I just love them so much, so I'm not going to confront them on their sin. When really, no, you love yourself too much. And you want everybody to love you too. One man said, we are to judge and assess the position of a person but we are not to dismiss and discharge the person as a whole. The word to judge, there's two different words. There's the word crino, which speaks to be like a fruit judge. And that's what we're to be. We're to judge fruit. You can tell a tree by its fruit, Jesus said. Then there's catecrino, which speaks of a condemning of a person, a throwing down or a damning of the person. Whenever we gossip, we are catechinoing a person. We are condemning them because we are writing the person off. We refuse to go to the person so that they can be restored. Man, in our fruit judging, in our crino, we're not trying to damn the person, but rather we're trying to bring them up out of the pit. We're willing to sacrifice our time and our energy to help them, to help them live righteously. We have uh, this sentencing and this condemnation that takes place. And next week, verse 22, we'll dive into this thought. Matthew chapter 23, verse 24, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for this type of judgment and this type of hypocrisy that in whatever they judged, they were practicing the same thing. In Matthew 23, 24, Jesus says, blind guides who strain out a gnat to swallow the camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And that's exactly the person that Jesus is talking to in Romans 2.1. But it doesn't just uh, pertain to the Pharisee, you guys. It pertains to us as well. The enemy is so tricky 
And he begins to take our works of righteousness and to twist them so that we feel that it's the works of righteousness that make us right before God rather than what Jesus has done so that we can work works of righteousness. He says, you who judge, condemn yourself, verse 1. For you practice the same things. Not one of us is righteous. Not one of us is free from falling into wicked thoughts or covetousness or maliciousness. You know, we hate what we read in the list of chapter 1, but then the Holy Spirit begins to show to us there's an awful lot of chapter 1 in each and every one of us. Verse 2 of Romans 2. You can tell we're making much better speed and pace in chapter 2 than we did in chapter 1. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. <clears throat> this is why the Lord says in Romans twelve nineteen, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Only he is just and true enough to judge rightly and to carry out vengeance without sin. The judgment that's used here in verse 2 is the word krima. And it's a lawful decision for or against something. It's a ruling, a verdict, a conclusion, or a result. And the conclusion of God is according to truth. We all just witnessed this last week, just this amazing bit of news. As Amanda Knox was finally acquitted after three years in an Italian prison on trial for her murder of her roommate on trial for the murder of her roommate, but acquitted, declared not guilty. I remember, you know, a year ago or, or longer, watching a Dateline episode about the whole Amanda Knox thing. And I remember shutting it off and going, she is so guilty. She's so guilty. And then to watch this and to say, well, a judge and jury in Italy have said that she's not. And, you know, maybe on this side of eternity, we'll never really and totally know but we know this, the judgment of God, the conclusion to it all, the grand finale, the result will be in accordance to truth. You know, men suppress the truth. Chapter one, verse 18 tells us, or we exchange the truth for a lie. The very truth that we will be judged by is suppressed and exchanged out. The truth, the reality, the certainty, the accuracy, the genuineness of it all is suppressed, but not by God. He is completely and totally legit in his judgment. I got a text from a friend this week as I was studying this, and he said, pray for me. My psychology professor is stating that there are no absolutes in life. And that evolution is a proven science. And you just get angry when you read something like that. Oh, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for her. But we can rest, even in the midst of it all, knowing that God's decisions are going to be according to reality, precision, and legitimacy. As Psalm 19.9 says, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. At the end of Revelation, after the great tribulation has taken place and hell on earth has, has happened and the postmodern world would say, oh, a great injustice has been done that God would pour out his wrath upon the world like that. 
But in Revelation 19.11, there in heaven opened up was a white horse. And he who sat on that white horse was called Faithful and True. True is his name. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So in the context of it all, God is going to rightly decide those who are condemning the actions of others. Yet the truth and reality is that they themselves are regularly and actively participating in the same sins. Romans 2 is going to lay out all the principles by which men will be judged. They will be judged according to truth in verse 2. They will be judged according to guilt. You just hop ahead in your mind to verse 6. And we'll find that we are all guilty. Because God's judgment reaches to the secret things of our heart. And Jesus told us that on the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, if you've lusted after a woman, the secret place of your heart, you've committed adultery, and I know it. And so we're to be anchored in these biblical truths and apply them in this way. God judges according to truth, verse 2 tells us. The truth about God, how he really feels about things. The truth about ourselves, that we're sinners desperately in need of the grace of God. And if you get this wrong, you fall into the self-righteous fundamentalist camp who hates everybody else but pats themselves on the back. When Paul would say, you've done the same things. Martin Luther says, the righteous invariably try to see their own faults and overlook that of others. They're eager to recognize the good things in others and to disregard those of their own. On the other hand, the unrighteous look for good in themselves and evil in others. The judgment of God will be according to truth about God, about ourselves, and the truth about others. Have they really sinned? What really happened? The Lord knows. He's omniscient. Verse 3. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you take comfort in your proactivity against pornography, your criticism of the gay community, your loathing of drug abuse, violence, and abortion, or teen pregnancy, to save you from the wrath of God? When you are, uh, when you are viewing pornography online or in movies, with all of these things in them, playing video games, living out your fantasies, traveling in these video games into strip clubs, murdering people in cold blood, being a cop killer, enjoying and living out your fantasies within these games that feature same-sex scenes and fornication, as well as these point-blank murders. And you think that God doesn't see these things? And that his wrath is not being kindled against you? The movies you watch, the TV that's in your house, the jokes, the video games, judging people, knowing it's wrong. You, you've obviously understood there's a standard out there. But why should you escape the judgment, Paul says, when you yourselves are practicing such things? We see here in verse 3, his judgment, it's a coming and there will be no escape. There will be a day of reckoning. We think that if enough time passes, we will escape the judgment of God. 
What do you call that in legal terms, you know, when the, the case is expired in time and so you can't judge it anymore? I was beating my head trying to figure out that legal term. Statute. Statute of limitations. That was on the tip. I just couldn't. I was looking at Googling. Time passing legal trials. <laughs> There's no statute of limitation with God. You sin once, James tells us, you are guilty of breaking the whole law. Man, in a legal case, you hope to have a good attorney or you hope that all of the evidence won't be brought up or you hope that there will be a faulty jury or a hung jury. I do know some legal terms. But none of these will be the case when we stand before God. You will not escape. God judges. He doesn't wink at sin in a silly way and pat you on the back and say, it's all good, little buddy. God gave his son to stand in our place of judgment and to take our punishment. That's a big thing. Romans 8, 31 through 39 tells us, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen to this. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And you could read the whole rest of the chapter and just have your heart melt to know that in all these things we're more than conquerors because of the deep love he's given us through his son believing in Jesus we only now receive the favor that is in God the standing that Christians have is a standing of favor before the Lord and yet Christians are not exempt from judgment either Judgment applies to Christians. So many Christians think that I can just keep on sinning because of grace. I always used to call it the grace card, you know. Oh, I can sin. Oh, license to sin, license to sin. Yeah, we're going to read in Romans. Paul says, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who've died to sin live any longer in it? You know, Christians are going to be judged as well. Verse uh, 10 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. God still deals with us. You know, we're to be an example of him in the world. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin with the house of God, it begins with us, and if it begins with us first, Peter says, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment begins at the household of God, and yet God's judgment upon believers is not punitive, inflicting punishment on the believer, but rather it is purifying. It's a purifying judgment. It's a refining process. It burns off all the impurities in the believer's life. He still judges us and calls us out on our sin to purify us, even though Jesus has taken our sin upon himself. And this should create huge humility within us because we don't deserve anything. God did not ignore this debt that we have accrued, but rather absorbed this debt at an infinite cost to himself. We should take the cue from Jesus who, when he was nailed to the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
One pastor said, Christians are not escapists. We're not escapists from judgment, but he said, we are Christological realists. Everything we are is examined as to how it pertains to Christ. And now we are judged according to the truth of what Jesus did for us. John Bradford was a famous first century reformer, or a 16th century reformer. He was imprisoned in the Tower of London. And after many years of being imprisoned, he saw one prisoner going away to his execution, a really bad prisoner who'd done some bad things, heading to his execution. And yet John Bradford said, but for the grace of God, there go I. It was then that that term was coined and made famous by a guy who realized what Jesus had done for him and that he was no better than that murderer or rapist or whatever this guy had done going to the, the uh, execution spot. What do we think? That we'll escape the righteous judgment of God? 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says that those hidden things of darkness are going to be judged. Romans 14, 12 says we are all <clears throat> going to give an account of himself before God. Hebrews 4.13 says that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to, before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And Peter also says that we are going to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Man, it's almost a rhetorical question, isn't it? Do you hate the riches of God's goodness and patience? Do you disesteem, have little or no respect? Do you hold in contempt God's moral excellence, his character, his demeanor, his forbearance, which speaks of his self-restraint and his tolerance, his long-suffering, which speaks of his patience? Do you hate God's patience? Do you have no esteem for his goodness? You know, most of us would say, no, of course. We love God's goodness. We love God's patience. Isn't it amazing that there are people that hate God's long-suffering towards them? Some people see God's patience as impotency. If God were there, then let him strike me down now. Remember hearing a story of a professor standing up every year in his class saying, putting a stopwatch on the counter and saying, if God is real, he will smite me down before this clock dings. And every year, just God was made a mockery of, ha, 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 that God who won't smite me down. Then finally, one student stood up and said, you think that you can exhaust the patience and long-suffering of our God in five minutes? You are worth way too much than that. Don't hate and don't despise his long-suffering. I was reading Proverbs 14 this week, and it says in verse 2 that he who walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who walks in perversity despises the Lord. And do you despise God for his patience in your perversity? Repent. Fear the Lord, honor the Lord in repentance. Don't you know, Paul says, that the goodness of God 
leads you to repentance. Man, as we study the judgment of God in this chapter, we're just looking in depth at it. Praise God for verse four, that we're reminded of the kindness of God. If there was just the judgment of God, man, we would have been snuffed out in the garden with Adam and Eve. But there's also the kindness of God. The kindness of God that throughout the history of the world, God's redeeming the planet. He's redeeming mankind because of his deep and great love for it. And it's that kindness that makes us want to respond in repenting of our sin and changing our mind about who God is. Peter tells us that God's not slack concerning his promises like some consider slackness. But rather, he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to this repentance. Verse 5, but in accordance of your hardness and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You have a hard heart. It is calloused. After so much time of being hardened and hardened more, it's just developed this, this, uh, this shield about it. It is a stubborn heart. It's impenitent and unrepentant. And in accordance to that, you're storing up this wrath. It's treasuring up and reserving wrath. Picture a dam just building up the pressure of water over time until finally one little stone breaks off from the middle and the stream of water shoots. And then finally just this rumble as the dam breaks. That's a picture of God's wrath over the centuries. It's been building up against sin. And to make it a little more personal, for those of you that don't repent and turn to Jesus, it's building up against you, against your hard heart, against your unrepentant heart. Revelation calls it the wrath of the Lamb. Yes, God is loving and merciful and gracious and compassionate and kind. But he's also a righteous judge who's bringing with him wrath and the day of wrath. We're going to read soon. Oh, we did read that in verse five. <laughs> but we notice his judgment is righteous. His judgment is inescapable. And his judgment is righteous. When people ask, what about the pygmy? You know, or what about the man on the highest mountain or in the deepest jungle? We're going to get into that next week. But all we need to be able to answer them is just, you know what? I trust God. He's right. He's righteous judge. He's fair in his judgments. And he's going to have a fair judgment upon the pygmy or the aborigine or the islander. He loves them. He's going to judge them rightly. He hates sin. But quit worrying about the aborigine and worry about yourself. What are you going to do when you stand before the Lord. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the sum of, you know, Solomon's rampage of every pleasure known to man. He says, let's hear the conclusion of my rampage. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's going to judge every secret thing, good or evil. Verse 6 of Romans 2, he will render to each one according to his deed. He will pay back according to his deeds, not 
his mom or dad's deeds or his grandpa's deeds, the founder of the Presbyterian church or whatnot, to his specific deeds. God's judgment is a personal judgment. It's inescapable, it's righteous, and it's personal. He'll judge a nation and he'll judge you, regardless of church or nation. You're not safe because your name is written on a pew somewhere. And Jonathan Edwards wrote the sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, to counter this idea that we're safe because we're American or because we're religious or because we're churchgoers. He's going to render to each one according to his deeds, and we'll get into that more next week. Eternal life, verse 7, for those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for themselves glory, honor, and immortality. What is a righteous person like? What do they seek after? What's their attitude? What are they known for? Well, they're known for patient continuance or cheerful endurance in doing good. Now, I, I believe walking in the spirit is this patient continuance. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, Galatians 5. Or Romans 8, 4, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled on those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That walking in the spirit is just a step by step by step, as my mom always said, the 15 minute plan. Just take it every 15 minutes, just walk in the spirit, walk in the spirit, patient continuance. And man, there is patience required. Patience in spite of sin, our own and others against us. Struggling in the sin that's in our life. And man, you know what? We all stumble, we all fall. But the Christian keeps on going. He lets Jesus pick him up. He lets Jesus dust him off. He repents, he confesses. And he lets Jesus stand him up again and, and just get him on his way. Patience in spite of sin and sinners and suffering, trials and tribulation and hardships. Losing anything and everything, but keeping on going on. Patient endurance. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 4 tell us we're to look to Jesus who set the example of endurance for us. He endured such hostilities from sinners against himself. Think about him, he says, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And then he says, you know, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. You know, we all just be like, oh, it's been so hard. Or the temptation comes by, no, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> no, oh, I fell into it again. You know, we just, the fight is over in a millisecond. And the writer of Hebrews just says, you know, the battle really hasn't been that hard. You haven't yet shed blood in your striving against sin. But Jesus suffered in all of those ways and shed his blood in that striving against sin. This person in verse 7 is seeking for themselves glory, honor, and immortality. Seeking to worship God is literally how it's, it's interpreted there. Glory and dignity. Not seeking from the glory of men, but the glory of God, so that they can go and give that glory back to God. As Revelation, we see the saints casting their crowns, casting their rewards back before Jesus, 
giving the glory back to whom it's due. As John Piper said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. And missions exist because worship doesn't. We're just going to finish just looking at this verse and we'll be done. Stuart, you can come on up. We see that they seek for themselves this high esteem of honor and value. This unending existence of eternal life and immortality. An inheritance in the heaven. Next week, we're going to come back and look at verses 7, specifically 7 through 10. And we're going to see that there are for sure, certainly, two results of the judgment that we've studied. This righteous judgment, this judgment that's without escape, this judgment that's according to truth, this judgment that is universal and personal. And these two results, these forks in the road, are either heaven or hell. We crack the surface or scratch the surface in verse 7, seeing that there are those who, by walking in the Spirit, have that assurity of glory and honor and eternal life. But in the verses through verse 10, we see that those who do evil and don't walk according to truth, but according to unrighteousness, we see that their outcome that opposite fork in the road is hell. Indignation, wrath, the wrath of the Lamb, tribulation and anguish are the words that are used there. We're going to look at that in more in depth, but for the sake of time, we have to push pause for the week. Let's go ahead and set our things aside. And just maybe close your eyes and just, just move to prayer and responding to the Lord. You know, I'm so thankful to come to Romans and that the Lord loves me enough to let me study this and to just convict me. You know, as I point the finger at the Romans 1 sinners, the really bad ones, just the Lord says, Rory, you're inexcusable yourself. And man, one of the most tragedies that could happen in my life is if I rested in just the good home that I was brought up in. A good mom and a good dad who feared the Lord. A good mom and a good dad who took me to church every Sunday. Made sure I was baptized by the age eight. <laughs> Yes, that's what I rest in, this heritage that I have. Having a Bible study in my high school from the age of 15 through my senior year and immediately going to school of ministry and blah, 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 blah. What a danger it could be to rest in that. Wonderful things that the Holy Spirit's worked in my life but it was all grace or all fruits of his spirit working through me. I don't rest in any of that. I rest in what Jesus has done when he took my place on the cross, when he laid down his perfect life and shed his spotless blood. 
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.